أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين إن شاء الله we're going to transition into the seerah so I'll be traveling next week um, so we'll miss two Fridays next Friday evening and the Friday after that but then the third Friday whatever date that is uh, I'll be back inshallah and that's when I want to start the seerah and we will begin obviously in the beginning and um, when I return and, and, I, and we begin the seerah I'll, I'll give some, some clear instructions of, of some books that people can get to, um, to follow along with and um, uh, we did the seerah before but this time I want to uh, you know there's no harm in doing it again and I also want to go into some more detail and hopefully the seerah will take us from now until Ramadan. So we have about six months uh, till Ramadan, plus or minus. So hopefully these six months or five months will take, a, will, it'll, that whole time we'll need to, to cover the seerah and I'll do my best that we will finish uh, by Ramadan. So since, since that's the direction we're going to go inshallah, and since this uh, Sunday is the, the celebration of the Mawlid, of the Prophet ﷺ in the mosque. I thought that tonight we can talk a little bit about that in a little bit more detail than, than what I did today at Jummah. And then of course, if people have questions, any questions, we can, we can go into that. So, I've spoken about the Milad a couple Fridays ago. I spoke about it today, inshallah. I'll speak about it tonight, and then we'll speak about it, of course, on Sunday. And I wrote a little article about the Sharia and the Milad. So if people are interested, they can, they can go to my website and they can find that. So, and I don't, I don't like to be in the, in the position of uh, defending things that honestly don't need to be defended. So if you don't believe in, in the Mawlid, tough luck. Um, it, it, that's not my, you know, my job is, is something different. The, the proof of this is, is beyond... <laughs> is beyond doubt. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he said, عَلَيْكُمْ بِسَوَادِ الْأَعْظَمِ إِنْ اِخْتَلَفْتُمْ فَعَلَيْكُمْ بِسَوَادِ الْأَعْظَمِ وَمَنْ شَذَّ شَذَّ فِي النَّارِ The Prophet ﷺ told us to be with the vast majority of the Ummah. السَوَادِ الْأَعْظَمِ The vast majority of the Ummah. When you have a dispute, find where the, the vast majority of people are and hold to that. وَمَنْ شَذَّ شَذَّ فِي النَّارِ And whoever goes against that, and disagrees, they are going towards the hellfire. So, when we have an issue in Islam that 99.9% .9 of the ulama talk about, and only 0.1% of the people talk about, then we hold with the 99.9%. That's, that's what it means to be Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. If somebody uh, doesn't agree, and they, and they really want to understand them, we can sit down and we can talk to them. And that's why I wrote that article, you know, so you can go through the details of what the proofs are for the mawlid and things like that. 
And unfortunately, this is the age that we live in that, that what is normal in Islam now we have to defend. And what is abnormal we have to you know, talk about. And that's sort of the uh, King Abdullah of Jordan. He, sa- he said recently that, that Islam is undergoing a civil war. And this is true. Sometimes I feel like we're in the middle of a civil war, but we're going to win, inshallah, ta'ala, by Allah's permission. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here to debate and this and that, but so if you want to know the details of the, the background, you can, you can get into that. I thought we would talk about the Milad in a little bit different uh, way. And I wanted to also speak about the history of the celebration itself. The celebration that we do every year, it has also a historical story. That, that I want to talk about. So, that being the case, the Prophet ﷺ, as we know, fasted on Mondays. And when he was asked why he fasted on Mondays, he said, هَذَا يَوْمٌ وُلِدْتُ فِي This is a day in which I was born. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, he fasted every single Monday, plus or minus, of course, because it's a sunnah, not a fard. Let's assume most of the Mondays of the year, for the reason of giving thanks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his birth. So fasting on Mondays and Thursdays is a sunnah, but specifically the fast on Monday, the Prophet, peace be upon him, he said, the reason I fast on Mondays is because this is the day that I was born. And this concept of celebrating, well actually maybe celebrating is the wrong word, but this concept of showing thanks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through pious works is part of the sharia. So when the Prophet, peace be upon him, came to Medina, for example, the Prophet, peace be upon him, he entered Medina on his birthday, on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal. The hijrah began at the end of Safar, and by the time the Prophet, Sasam and Sayyidina Abu Bakr arrived in Medina, it was on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, also on a Monday. So the following year, so Rabi' al-Awwal is the third month of the, of the year. So the following Muharram, you know, 10 months later, or 9 plus months later, when the Prophet ﷺ found the Jews fasting on the day of Ashura, which is the 10th of Muharram, he asked, why, did the, why are you fasting? And the Jews said, well, we fast out of thanks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for freeing Moses and the Israelites from Pharaoh. And then the Prophet ﷺ ordered the companions to fast the, the day of Ashura. So in the beginning, the, the fast of the day of Ashura was a fard, was an obligation. And then this was abrogated by the fard of Ramadan, which actually took place in that year, and then the fast of Ashura became a sunnah. Anyway, the point is, is that here the Prophet ﷺ also engaged and ordered us and uh, you know, admonished us, encouraged us to fast on the day of Ashura. Why? To show thanks that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved Bani Israel and Moses ﷺ from Fir'aun. And this is when Allah ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَذَكِّرْهُمْ بِأَيَامِ اللَّهِ Remind them of the days of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is... These are the days of Allah Ta'ala in history when Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is manifest in these great events. We meet these great events with some kind of thanks, with some kind of shukr, with, with fasting, with salah, reading of the Qur'an, something like that. So this is the, the concept of the milad is, is if you just erase the word celebration because celebration sometimes in the English language it, it maybe has other connotations. So what the milad is, is showing thanks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this event, which in this case is the birth of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa which he did every week. So we're talking about once a year, this is something that he did weekly.
peace be upon him. Also, as I, as I said earlier today, the companions themselves, they praise the Prophet, peace be upon him, all the time. So the companions were people that were, were in love with the Prophet And even though they were all in love with the Prophet and they all had the suhbah, you know, they were all companions, there were a few of them, about 200, that we have documented that they actually sang poems of praise to the Prophet, peace be upon him. So this was a common custom of the companions that on the day of Eid, they would sing in the mosque, they would have music, they would have instruments, you know, the duff, the, the drum. I mean instruments, I don't want you to think Kennedy Center Orchestra. I'm not talking about it. instruments in ancient Arabia. So you have to also, but they had instruments in the mosque on the day of Eid. They had music in the mosque on the day of Bu'ath, which was a non-Islamic holiday, which was a pre-Islamic holiday. The day of Bu'ath was a day that the Ansar of Medina celebrated the victory of a, of a pre-Islamic battle. And that's very important for us as a tangent because that's, that shows the Prophet ﷺ's civic involvement. So things like Veterans Day, July 4th, you know, for us as, a, as Americans, that falls under the category of the day of Bu'ath. That those are days that we should celebrate, that we do celebrate, that we engage in Thanksgiving. These type of things are civic holidays. So anyway, on those days and on the day of Eid, in the mosque, they would have music and they would sing and, and the Prophet said they would dance, the boys and girls would dance and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would you know, do more, you know, encourage them, he was happy with them, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The companions were a festive people and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was a festive person. I know you might find that being strange, but if you read, if people read the Sunnah, that's what you find. People that don't read the Sunnah, they don't find that because they don't read. And... When the Prophet ﷺ would go to travel, whether it be for battle or tray or whatever the case may be, and come back, every time he would come back, all of the people in the town, they would go out to the border of the city and they would meet him and they would cheer him. And this is where we get Tala al-Badr alayna from, the famous Qasida. Right? So throughout the Muslim world until today, many Muslim cultures, this is what they do during the Milad. You see them with their flags, you know, if they belong to a Sufi order, or they belong to a certain village, or they go out with their flags, and they march in the streets and the parades. This itself is a sunnah of what the companions did, of how they would greet the Prophet ﷺ. Imagine if you had like a, you know, a parade down River Road, uh, you know, on the day of the Mawlid, with the ICCP flag, and you know, why, do, why would we do something like this, other than we're half crazy, right? Is that this is a sunnah, this is what the companions did, this is how happy they were with the Prophet ﷺ. And they wanted to make sure that he was safe, and they would make sure that he was safe before they would ask about their children and their husbands and their brothers in battle. You know, unfortunately, as we'll come to talk in the seerah, from the minute that the Prophet ﷺ arrived in, in Medina, in the first month of Medina, in this month of Rabi'al Awwal, there were threats from the Quraysh. I mean, there was no respite. There was no gap. He fled Mecca to Medina to avoid conflict. But in that same month, the Quraysh sent threatening letters and notices. And it was one skirmish, one battle after another, one battle after another, one battle after another, until the conquest of Mecca. So the Prophet ﷺ, the time in Medina, the 10 years in Medina, were full of, of these excursions and military battles and you know Badr and Uhud and Uhud too and Hunayn and Khandaq and all of these things. So when the Prophet would go out and come back, 
they would celebrate his return, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And the Prophet sallallahu showed his pleasure when the people, his companions, praised him. Uh, of course, Hassan ibn Thabit is is the great example. He was he is referred to in our literature as Sha'ir al Nabi, the the poet of the Prophet. I mean, you could think of him as the poet laureate of the state of Medina. But there were hundreds of others of, of both men and women companions that would sing the praises of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And what is what are these songs and these poems and, and this happiness? What is it at its core? It's saying, Thank you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for sending us this great blessing, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who has taught us this way, who has taught us sanity, who has taught us humility, who has taught us how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything that we do in our religious life is nothing but an enactment of the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu He is our door to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We know no other way of worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except through Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So that's a big, you know, a big deal. So when you have this clarity and you have this gift, you're happy and you're thankful and you're, and you're grateful the way they were grateful. Of the Prophet ﷺ. Also related to this issue is loving the Prophet ﷺ for us is an article of faith. So this is not something that we do simply uh, because of what I just mentioned. It's like pro forma. We just do it because that's what the companions did. No, this is a way for us to facilitate our personal journey of loving the Prophet ﷺ. So it's not enough that you would just say La ilaha illallah and Muhammad Rasul. I mean, of course, that brings you into the you know, tent of Islam, the big tent of Islam. But our faith really is hinged on loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and loving the Prophet, peace be upon him. And the Prophet, he said, as, as was recorded in Bukhari and Muslim, that none of us truly believe, La yu'minu ahadukum. None of us truly believe until I am more beloved to you than your wealth and your family, and your children, and your parents, and all people, including your own self. So that's a reminder, but it's also a challenge for us to love the Prophet ﷺ more than our own selves. Now think about, maybe the younger people can remember this, but think about the last time you were in love with somebody. And how that, that love or that infatuation with that person, it just occupied you know, your whole mind. And you're so excited to see that person. And, and you know, I remember you know, being like that when I was younger, when I was about to get married. I remember, I remember those days. That's all you could see. You, know, you could go three, four days without sleep. You, know, you, could, do, you, could, you could leap tall buildings with a single bound. It doesn't matter. To get to the beloved, you'll do anything. You, and you made it work. Now, think about that capacity that you have as a person to love somebody else, what that means towards the Prophet ﷺ, loving him than everybody that you can possibly think of, including your own self. That, when, that means that when you just see his name, you know, like we have his name on the, on the wall, when you just see his name, you shake on the inside. You would do anything for the Prophet ﷺ. If you heard that the Prophet ﷺ liked this or did this or didn't do that, you would want to do that and not do that. If you heard that he liked to eat this food, you know, you would want to eat it. 
If you heard that he dressed this way, you would want to dress that way. If you heard he slept this way, you would want you get you become obsessed with the Prophet. So all of this literature that we have in Islam, the seerah and the shama'il and the khasa'is, all of these things, including the milad, the celebration of the milad, are all ways that facilitate us to achieve this love of the Prophet. And this at its core is what it means to be a Muslim. If you understand this, you'll understand all of Islam. Recently I was with um, Muhammad Zakaria, you know, the famous calligrapher. And we were talking, it's, I, this, the, uh, a couple of podcast episodes ago we were talking about this. And I asked him, he said something very interesting. He said the, the Qur'an is the constitution of beauty in Islam. And that all calligraphy is essentially based on, most calligraphy is based on writing beautiful verses of parts of verses of the Qur'an. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, do you have any advice for anyone that's listening? And he said, my advice is you have to know the Prophet ﷺ. That's the most important thing. And he just distilled everything into that. And I remember personally when I was studying in the beginning, and maybe you've heard me say this before, when I was studying in the beginning at Al-Azhar, it was very difficult in the beginning for me because it was very advanced and you know I have to think in Arabic, write in Arabic, not just read in Arabic. So you know it was like trauma. You know I had to become an Arabic thinker and speaker and articulate the question in, in Arabic and it was like a traumatic thing. And it was very hard to keep up and I always felt I was behind and I'm never going to amount to anything, etc., etc., etc. Until I understood this point. Until and it was a slow process, I understood what love of the Prophet ﷺ meant. And after that, everything became easy. Because when you see everything from the lens of love, as that example I was saying, when you love somebody, everything becomes easy. You will do the impossible. And that's why the Sahaba did the impossible. Because they loved the Prophet ﷺ. They literally did the impossible. Those, those pre-Islamic Arabs were the worst human beings God put on this earth. The things that they believed in were ridiculous. The things that they did were ridiculous. If you saw them, you would never think that this group of people in the middle of Arabia would amount to anything. But those same very people, they were transformed. And they transformed the world, and the world till today is transformed because of what they did. That same generation. Radiallahu anhum. And this is the power of love. This is the power of belief. So, because love of the Prophet ﷺ is such a dominant theme in Islam, we have all of these tools to help us get to that. All of these poems, all of these songs, all of these stories are nothing but a way for us to facilitate for us personally to feel, yes, I do love the Prophet ﷺ. I'm in love with the Prophet ﷺ. And I'll do anything for him. And I'll do anything that he says. And everything that he says and he advises is nothing but khair. It's nothing but goodness. To be better people. To be kinder. To be humbler. But we're not going to be able to do those things unless we, we understand it from the lens of love. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهِ If you love God, follow the Prophet ﷺ and God will love you. So our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is based on love. Our relationship with the Prophet is also based on love. And from this love comes obedience. 
This is why Imam Shafa he has a famous line of poetry and he says, you claim that you love God, but then you, you sin. If you loved God truly, you wouldn't sin because you obey the person that you love. If, if, your, if your lover tells you, change the way you dress, change the way you eat, change the way you speak, you'll do all of these things if you love that person. If you're in love with somebody and they want you to dye your hair yellow or purple, you'll do it because you're in love. You'll do crazy things. Don't they say love makes, you, makes you, us do crazy things? You can overcome the nafs if you love that person. So Allah Ta'ala, because He created us this way, He's saying, well, your relationship with the Divine and your relationship with the Prophet ﷺ is also based on love. But a love that's greater, that transcends the love that we have for you know, a spouse or a child or a parent or something like that. It's greater than that. So therefore, we have the capacity to obey and we have the capacity to overcome our shortcomings. And then lastly, before I talk about the history aspect, Allah Ta'ala, He addresses the Prophet ﷺ in the Qur'an and He says, Allah Ta'ala reminds the Prophet ﷺ in the Qur'an, you know, we, we share with you all of these stories of all of the other Prophets, you know, Moses and Abraham and Nuh and Sulaiman and Dawood and Yusuf, all of the stories of the Qur'an. Allah is telling the Prophet ﷺ, we, we say these stories for you so we can make your heart firm. Because the job of the Prophet is very difficult. Now if the Prophet ﷺ heart needed to be firm, how about us? We're not, we're not Prophets, we're, not, we're nothing <laughs> compared to, to that. So we need reinforcement. And now more than ever is when we need these type of events. It's when people uh, insult the Prophet ﷺ and when, pe- when Muslims say, oh, this is bid'ah, and this is, this is the time that we need it even more. Because that's how crazy Muslims have become. That's how crazy Islam has become. We need this even more to re- for our own selfish reasons. We want to be saved in this world and the next. We don't want to be always confused. And always, you know, not sure, and is it this or is it that? Is it right? Is it wrong? We want to have clear Islam based on firm principles. And we want an Islam that makes us happy, that lifts us, that, that, that gives us the, 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 the resource that we need to overcome our shortcomings, ourselves, our children, our parents, everyone around us. So this is if the Prophet Allah Ta'ala is saying, I'm reminding you of all of these stories so that you, you, be, you can become patient and firm in your mission. This is also a message for us. We also need to be firm and reinforced and reminded. And we need all the help we can get. So we want our religion to be a religion of love. Not a religion of, of nastiness. We want our, our religion to be a religion of mercy. Not of difficulty. We want our religion to be a religion of ease. All of that is in the Prophet So when it comes to the event of the Milad, we rejoice. Because it's a reminder for us that we have a way. We know how to become easy and calm and, and grounded and happy and... And, and, and we know that it's all through love. So out of our love and out of our gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we celebrate in a way that is compliant with the, the Qur'an and Sunnah, of course. You know, we're not doing anything haram in the celebration. And we remind ourselves that it's all based on love. Now, as for 
the history of the celebration itself. Because of course, despite everything that I said, there was no formal celebration of the Mawlid of the Prophet at the time of the Prophet and the Sahaba. There was no, you know, on the calendar and, you know, this is a day off and, you know, the bells are ringing. It wasn't like that. I mean, I understand that. So from that point of view, the celebration itself is a bid'ah. But it's just the same way as Taraweeh prayer is a bid'ah. You know, the Prophet and the companions, they didn't pray Taraweeh at the time of the uh, Prophet It wasn't until the Khilafah of Sayyidina Umar that Umar radiallahu anhu brought everyone together to, to pray the Taraweeh. So that's a bid'ah. And the Mus'haf, putting the Mus'haf, the Qur'an in a book, that's a bid'ah. Because that didn't happen at the time of the Prophet So yes, of course it's a bid'ah from the linguistic point of view that it's something new. But it's a bid'ah hasana, it's a, a bid'ah that's, that's good. So where does this, the formal celebration come from? The Fatimids, who were a branch of Shia Islam, a Ismaili branch of Shia, you know, the, the Shia are two major branches, the Ithna Ashara, the 12 Imam Shias, and the Fatimids, or the seven Imam Shias. The Ithna Ashara Shia, the 12 Shia Imams, those are the Shia that maybe we're more familiar with. You know, the Shias of Iran, uh, Iraq, Lebanon, uh, eastern part of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, Afghanistan. Uh, you know, those are the Shia that we're most familiar with interacting with. There's another minor group of Shias. We refer to them as Ismaili because of the name of the seventh Imam. But they, they, today they have different names, you know, like the Aga Khanis, the Boris, uh, etc. In history, the early group of that branch of Shia Islam were the Fatimids. And the Fatimids, they ruled Egypt for about 200 years. And actually the Fatimids are the one that built Al-Azhar, not the Sunnis. And the word Al-Azhar comes from a Zahra, from Fatima to Zahra, alayhi salam. They ruled Egypt from the year 362 of the Hijrah to 567. The, the Fatimids of Egypt, they had two, two things that they did that impacted the Milad or the celebration of the Milad in, in subsequent generations. The first is unfortunately they had this habit of cursing some of the Sahaba. And I'm not saying that all Shia cursed the Sahaba. This is not about a Sunni Shia. I'm talking about history. Okay? And, we, and we don't really know where the Fatimids went after that or what happened. So I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm talking about historically. So they would make the Imam on the Mimbar on Friday. Part of their routine is that they would curse some of the Sahaba. And they would actually offer monetary compensation for people that would curse the Sahaba. And this is why, for example, when we do salawat, we say, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. In the formulas of the salawat of the Prophet, Salaam alaikum, long time no see. Salaam alaikum. Sorry, I didn't mean not to give salam. <laughs> in the, the formulas of the salawat of the Prophet, Salaam, that we have in the sunnah, there is no wasahbihi. There is no prayer on the companions. But the companions are mentioned in the Quran, Walladina Ma'ahu. The people with who are the people with the Prophet? The Sahaba. So I mean the Sahaba are, you know, they're good. Obviously, we, we believe in the Sahaba. But there's no formal formula that says Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi. 
But at the time of the Fatimids, because it became a practice that they would curse some of the Sahaba, it was the Sunni reaction, this was like the fifth column, like Sunni fifth column in Egypt at the time, is that they would, they added this formula, وَآلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ to prove that in Sunni Islam we respect the family of the Prophet ﷺ and we also respect the Sahaba radiallahu anhum ajma'in. This is where this formula came from. And it, it's, it, it continued till now, like in the takbirat of the Eid, when we say Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa sahbi, you know, wa ansarihi wa azwaji, so on and so forth. This is where historically where it came from. So this is one thing that they did. The second thing that they did is they wanted to celebrate the Khalifa. So they would have a little celebration of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and then a celebration of Imam Ali السلام, and then a celebration of the Khalifa as being a descendant of this line. So there were these formal state-sponsored celebrations, of which amongst them was the Milad of the Prophet But then who came after the Fatimids? Salah al-Din. Al-Ayubi, radiallahu anhu, who died in the year 589. And when Salah al-Din came, of course Salah al-Din was Kurdish, as some of you will know. And when Salah al-Din came and he overthrew the Fatimids of Egypt, his task was to re-Sunnify Egypt. So one of the things that he did is he stopped all public celebrations, including the Mawlid of the Prophet Wasallam. So some of the, the Salafi bozos, they think that this means that the, it was a bid'ah, so Salah al-Din uh, canceled the, the Mawlid, but that's not obviously the case. He also closed down Friday prayers, except for the main jama'ah. You know, in a, in a traditional Islamic city, on Friday there's only one Jummah. I mean, like in the classic books of fiqh, of course it never happens because our cities are, mashallah, we procreate so fast that you know, we can't all fit in one place. But that's why they call the Jama Mosque, when you go to a traditional Islamic city like Cairo or Damascus or Istanbul or other places, there's a Jama mosque, a big mosque, which means the other mosques have to close down for Friday and everyone comes to the Jummah. Which is why there was never none of this bid'ah haram nonsense, because there was always the main guy giving the khutbah. Now you go to the Muslim world, every apartment building has a little zawiyah on the bottom and they're giving a khutbah and there's not enough people to, so they just grab the guy that washes the car, they say, you give the khutbah. They grab the guy that's, you know, cleans the trash and say, you give the, you're wearing a, a jalaba, so you give the khutbah, you know. And we've, we've reduced Islam to the lowest common denominator, right? And, and all of, the, and all of the, the immigrants, you understand what I'm talking about, right? All of the, the good people, they go to, they become physicians and engineers and mashallah, lawyer, mashallah, doctor, right? But no one goes to the madrasa to study Quran or to study hadith or to study shit. That's, that's for the, the molisab, that's for the, the poor people. Right? The sheikh is, a, is a, a euphemism for a poor, ignorant person. And if you look at the Arab world, and my country of origin, unfortunately, is the leader in this. If you look at all of the Arabic films, the black and white Arabic films, the Arabic teacher is always the goofy teacher. The sheikh is always the ignorant person. You know, very stupid, very dumb, doesn't know anything. You know, this type of colonization, it's another subject for another time altogether. But I don't know how I got on this topic. But anyway, oh, the, the Salah al-Din. So one of the things that Salah al-Din did is he closed down all of the Friday prayers. So we would stop this cursing of the Sahaba nonsense and we would re-sunnify Islam. Now Salah al-Din, he had like a mini empire. So he had a lot of relatives, they're all like, like the Kurdish mafia. 
and this person married his sister and he went and ruled over here and this person married his cousin and he went so he sort of spread around the area not just Egypt but all the way going to Iraq including Damascus etc and he has all of these deputies and all these lieutenants all over the place and of course Salah al-Din is married, uh, buried in Damascus uh, behind the Umawi Mosque rahimahullah one of the people that he uh, um, that was sort of part of this effort and Salah al-Din is very important for us historically because you know all of these people they think that Salah al-Din is going to emerge from the clouds and solve all of our problems I want you to see what Salah one of the things that Salah al-Din did when he went in Egypt and he closed all of the, the Jumas uh, unified them he stopped all of the celebrations he also spent a lot of money to open Sufi lodges what we call in our literature Khanaqa you know, the Khanaqahs or Zawiya uh, or Ribat, they have different names. But these were places, these lodges were places, I'm not talking about Masonic lodges, you know, please be mindful. I'm talking about, you know, the, 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 the dervishes and stuff like that. These were the people that were like the um, lifeline of the community. And these are the people that these are the people that were taught the rest of the community how to pray and how to make dhikr and how to fast and how to be charitable and so the Salah al-Din he spent all of this money on all of these zawiyas to counter this cursing of the Sahaba and this you know the Shia propaganda that was happening from the Fatimids. The first Sunni person that we have recorded to celebrate the Milad al-Sharif in the way that we celebrate it, was a sheikh by the name of Sheikh Omar Mullah, who died in the year 570 from the city of Mosul in Iraq. And Sheikh Omar Mullah was a subject, quote-unquote, of the governor of Damascus, the Sultan of Damascus, Nur al-Din al-Zanki. And Nur al-Din al-Zanki, radiallahu was a very pious ruler. And you've, you've heard me to tell the story of Nur al-Din. He had a dream of the Prophet, وسلم, and the Prophet said, came to him and said, you have to come and save me, you have to come and save me. I remember, do you remember this story from me? Who remembers the story? Who, who's never heard this story before? Okay, so Nur al-Din al-Zanki, who's also buried next to the Amawi Mosque in Damascus, in the middle of the Hamidiyya, uh, marketplace he had this reoccurring dream that the Prophet ﷺ came to him and said you have to save me you have to save me you know one night two night three night you know a few nights in a row he, he's starting to worry something is wrong so he takes his people and they march south towards Medina they arrive in Medina and he says uh, he goes to the mosque and he, t he tells the Mu'adhan call the Adhan and the Mu'adhan says well there's not prayer time he says well that's the point call the Adhan so people will come to the mosque so everyone comes to the mosque, it's not prayer time, what's going on? And they're like, oh, you know, the Sultan is here. So Nur al-Din, he asks the people of Medina, he says, is there anybody in the mosque? Is this everybody? Or is there somebody that's weird looking? Or is there somebody that's not in the mosque? And they look around and they said, no, everyone is here. But you know, there are these couple of, of, of Moroccans that are new to town and they live, you know, like, kind of like over this way. They're not in the mosque. So they go to the... Uh, hut or whatever it is, which is next to the mosque of the Prophet and they find that they're not Moroccans or anything, but they're crusaders disguised as Moroccans and they were trying to dig a tunnel underneath 
the mosque of the Prophet to steal the body of the Prophet. They had this stupid idea that they're going to steal the body of the Prophet and take it back to Europe and ransom it, I don't know, for Jerusalem or I don't know, some, some weird plan like that, which obviously didn't work. So, Nuruddin Azenki, he uh, obviously they apprehended these people and I think they were executed or something like that. And then he asked and he, he ordered that these huge like lead walls be inserted around the grave of the Prophet to protect the blessed resting place of the Prophet and if you, if you get a, any book that talks about the construction of the mosque of Medina and, and shows you, I should have brought it, I have a book, it's in Arabic but there's a very beautiful drawing and it shows you where those concrete or those lead slabs are around the grave of the Prophet So Nur al-Din al-Zanki, he was a pious ruler and he spent even more than Salah al-Din spent on the mashayikh and on the mosques and on the schools and, and you know, houses uh, for widows and homes for orphans. And he was just, you know, these, these, the Salah al-Din and the family and this like Kurdish mafia people, they were full of goodness and khair and, and, and philanthropy for all of the people around them. Anyway, so because of this, he, he sponsored the Mawlid celebration of Sheikh Omar Mullah in Mosul. And she, as I said, Sheikh Omar Mosul, he died in the year 570. And he was also very pious, but he was the first Sunni that we have recorded. And he was a Sheikh, not, not a governor, he was, a, he was not a politician, he was a Sheikh who, who had a very elaborate Mawlid celebration of the Prophet And then after that, a few decades after that, we have the ruler of, of Irbil, uh, the king Al-Mudhaffar, radiallahu anhu, who died in the year 630 of the Islamic calendar. Al-Malik al-Mudhaffar, he was married to Salah al-Din's sister. And he was even more generous than Nur al-Din Zink, and he was even more generous than Salah al-Din. And it is recorded that he would spend on the Mawlid celebration every year 300,000 dinars. 300,000 gold pieces. So if we go and we calculate how much gold the dinar weighed, which is a, a fact that I forgot, clearly forgot because I can't reproduce it now, but I had that memorized at one point. It call, and if we, we weigh, we multiply that by 300,000 and then go online and see how much a troy ounce of gold is and multiply 300,000 times the weight of the gold times the cost of the gold, it's going to be probably 20 to 50 million dollars in today's money that he would spend on the Milad celebration of the Prophet And these are the people that we look to in history as these, this was the golden time of Islam and this is Salah al-Din and you know, he, he recaptured Jerusalem and we're a Salah al-Din today. And the, the people that say that are the same people now that say the Mawlid is haram and the Mawlid is bid'ah and this and that and all that nonsense. And you see where the disconnect is. But these were the people that were connected to the Prophet ﷺ, connected to the Qur'an, connected to the Sunnah. You know, Salah al-Din, when they were uh, fighting the Crusaders, he would march around the tents of his troops at night to make sure everyone was praying Qiyam al-Layl. And if they weren't praying Qiyam al-Layl, he wouldn't let them fight the next morning. This is the kind of person, or the kind of people that these people were. Radiallahu anhu. So, Al-Malik al-Mudhaffar of Irbil was 
again, one of the earliest Sunni figures to sponsor officially the celebration of the Mawlid of the Prophet ﷺ, spending you know, tens of millions of dollars on the celebration. Now, in, in the seerah of the Prophet, peace be upon him, we have multiple opinions of when the Prophet ﷺ was born. The most authentic opinion that we have is that the Prophet ﷺ was born on the 8th of Rabi' al-Awwal. And there are some opinions that he was born on the 12th and other days. But we know that he, was, he entered Medina on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal. So people like Al-Malik al-Mudhaffar and others, they decided we will celebrate and take the opinion that the Prophet ﷺ was born on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal. So it will match the same day in which he entered in Medina. And what else happened on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal in the Prophet's life? He passed on the same day. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, we commemorate the birth of the Prophet, peace be upon him. We commemorate the conclusion of the hijrah of the Prophet, and we commemorate the passing of the Prophet. So this is a, a little historical sketch of the actual celebration. And from that time, from Al-Mudhaffar and Salah al-Din, all these people, till our time, this is a, in Muslim majority countries, this is a national celebration. This is a national day, and in Muslim communities around the world, this country included, this is a month in which every mosque and every home, and we have uh, celebrations of various kinds, and we recite qasidas, we recite naat. Some people, they have hairs of the Prophet and come, people come and visit it. Uh, some people will give talks, sometimes the children do, do presentations, we have sweets. All of these type of things that we do too, live in the day, to live in the event, and to remind us of this tremendous blessing that we have, alhamdulillah, this tremendous gift that we have been given in the Prophet So that's what I wanted to share uh, about the Milad al-Sharif. Any questions? Yeah. Um, so you only show up like during the Mawlid time. Wow. You're a Mawlid Muslim. I sometimes. Yeah. The Jews, they call them high holiday Jews. They only come like at the... I'm just kidding. I'm just giving you a hard time. I know you the far away. <laughs> um, I had a question about the... Uh, what, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't imagine that the Fatimids out of nowhere were picking up this idea of celebrating the birth of the Prophet as we do today. Was, it, was there any lead up in like... Because that was, I guess, the year 1000 or something. Like, there were 400 years or 500 years, I guess, after the Prophet's... Uh, uh, no, they ruled Egypt from the year 362. Uh, not, not that we have recorded. In other words, in, 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 there, there were Mawlid treatises written. The earliest Mawlid treatise we ha was written in the late 200s by Sunni authorities. And of course the Milad is simply just a part of the Seerah. So the Seerah goes back to Ibn Ishaq. And that, that chain of transmission you know, goes back to the Prophet So from the, from the time of the Sahaba until now, there was mention of the birth of the Prophet And there were these acts of devotion and celebration in the way that I mentioned. But the formal, we're going to get together and we're going to party, 
the, we, it, the earliest record, record that we have most likely was from the Fatr. Allah Alam, I mean, maybe they, that's the extent of my. Well, that's a that's big a big a bigger topic. But the the basic sketch, the outline is that the dispute amongst the Sahaba happened during the Khilafah of uh, after the Khilafah of Sayyidina Uthman. So Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu is assassinated. He's assassinated. Imam Ali alayhi salam becomes the Khalifa. At the same time, Muawiyah is the governor of Damascus. Muawiyah is, for, is the relative of Sayyidina Uthman. This is the second Khalifa to be assassinated. Umar, Sayyidina Umar was assassinated, anhu. Sayyidina Uthman was assassinated, and then subsequently Sayyidina Ali alayhi is assassinated. But at that time, so Sayyidina Ali's ijtihad is we have a national crisis. I have to secure national security over avenging the death of Sayyidina Uthman. Because of this, and we agree with the ijtihad of Sayyidina Ali, even as Sunni Muslims, because the Prophet Sallallahu he says, Al-Haqqu ma'aliyun ayyamadar, the truth is with Ali wherever he goes. We believe in the, in the uh, ijtihad of Sayyidina Ali. Muawiyah did not send his bay'ah, did not send his allegiance, meaning he didn't send in his electoral college vote, for the Khilafah of Sayyidina Ali, and he withheld that, trying to force Sayyidina Ali to solve this problem of who killed his relative Uthman. This is where the dispute happened amongst the Sahaba. This is the original schism, the original tension point. If you read in this story of this fitna, as it's referred to in our books, Al-Fitna, you will find that there were non-Muslim elements that were trying to spread misinformation between both the camp of Muawiyah and the camp of Sayyidina Ali. This ultimately culminated in uh, death at, at one point uh, or another in the story in which some of the Sahaba fought and some of the Sahaba fell, radiallahu anhum. And from this tension point, after Sayyidina Ali is killed, after Sayyidina Ali, Imam Hassan becomes the Khalifa for six months, and then he resigns. He is ultimately poisoned, Sayyidina, Ali, uh, Sayyidina Hassan salam, and dies. The rulership moves from Muawiyah to Yazid. Imam al-Hussein, who is the younger brother of Sayyidina al-Hassan, is tricked by the people of Iraq. He goes out to Iraq under the assumption that he has the votes, that he has the bay'ah. So he stands up to answer the response of the community. 
And he's ultimately assassinated him and, and more than 70 of Ahlul Bayt in Karbala. And from that point on, the Umayyads continue into the, and then after that, the Abbasids, etc. And then the, the family of the Prophet Sallallahu they, they lead a more quiet life between Mecca and Medina. And this is where the, the tension or the original split between the Sunnis and the Shia emerge. That the Shia will say that they follow the Imams, which are also our Imams, the family of the Prophet but they will afford to them a level of belief that we do not afford to them. They will say that some of the Shia will say that they're infallible, Masum, we don't, we don't believe anyone was Masum after the Prophet but we say that they are Mahfud, that they are protected because they are Awliya and they are Ulama. You know, Imam Abu Hanifa, he said, Lawla sanatan were it not for the two years that I spent with Jafar al-Sadiq, I would have been lost. And Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, he is for us, you know, one of the great Imams of Islam. And this is, you know, generation after generation, this is where it sort of gets further and further apart. But it happens from this original tension. However, since the 1950s, up until now, there's been a tremendous effort to bridge the gap between the Sunnis and the Shias. So other than the history, which is you know, unfortunate, all of the differences between Sunnis and Shias, they come down to five issues. That's it. This is only five sticky. Everything else is solvable. The five issues are the isma of the Imams, the infallibility of the Imams. Some of the Shias, they said that there is that the Qur'an is not necessarily preserved, which of course for us is, is we believe that inna inna The third is a, a theological concept called al-bada' which the Sunnis understand is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can change his mind, which for us theologically doesn't make sense. And of course, everything that I'm saying is from the perspective of a Sunni. Of course, the Shias would respond to this. Al-Isma, Al-Qur'an, Tahrif Al-Qur'an, Al-Bada' Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad The cursing of the Sahaba. Of course, we don't curse any of the Sahaba. Even Muawiyah. We say radiallahu anhu, Muawiyah was from the people that wrote down the Qur'an as it was revealed, as is recorded in Sahih Muslim. Now we don't agree with the ijtihad of Muawiyah. We agree with the ijtihad of Imam Ali and if we were there we would be with Imam Ali and if we were with, at Karbala we would be standing with Imam Al-Husayn and we say Imam Al-Husayn alayhi salam, we say Fatima alayhi salam, we say Imam Ali alayhi salam. But we don't curse the Sahaba, that's a big difference. And there's a fifth one that I can't, I can't, it'll come to me. These are the only five sticky issues. Everything else is reconcilable. The fiqh and the this and the usul, all of that's reconcilable. It says these five major issues and the Shia have responded. Many of the, the great Shia ayatollahs have responded uh, to this. You know, I spent some time with ayatollah Taskhiri. I spent time with ayatollah Damad. And these were all godly people. They were all saintly people. They were all, you know, great ulama, great men of God that I didn't feel any difference from. So the direction that the ummah is going into now is we want to reconcile the differences between the Sunni and the Shia. So we should focus on that. Assalamu We should focus on that and not on the difference. But the history, it's, it's a long history. Yeah. Just a side note, uh, didn't 
uh, I forgot which one, but Ayatul Khamenei, I think. Uh, didn't he pass a fatwa that prohibited cursing the Sahaba? I know one of these recent. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, no, they all they all they, say there were Shia in the past that did that. We don't we don't condone that. Yeah, one of them. I'm pretty sure it's Khamenei. He made it pretty clear: do not curse the Sahaba. Yeah, so all all of those five issues that I just or four because I can't remember the fifth. I'm saying them from the perspective of a Sunni. The Shia have responded to them in a satisfactory way. But I'm saying those there are books and historical documents that the Shias have written that we have that are published in which they claim these things and the Shia they said no we don't that's outside of orthodox the Shia and and we consider the Shia Muslim they say the Kalima they pray towards Mecca they eat halal I had a Shia an Iraqi Shia gentleman who uh, is insisting that when he dies I make sure that we wash him and that we pray Janazah and I mean for a year now and at the very end he said but but uh, Tariq, uh, I'm a Shia. I said, Sunni Shia, you're a Muslim. He said, but all of the other mosques, they wouldn't, they wouldn't accept my, my request. I said, well, that's why you're talking to me. I said, yeah, either me or Tarif, I haven't told Tarif this yet, will we'll wash you and shroud you and pray on you and bury you. They're Muslim. That's it, full stop. This is another like madhab. So that's what we're trying to do. Doctor. Well, yes, yes and no. A lot of that, what you said in the beginning part, is backcasting, you know, the Shia backcasting and saying, well, the problem really started from the beginning. When Sayyidina Abu Bakr became the Khalifa, عنه, Sayyidina Ali he also felt that he should have been the Khalifa. But you have to keep in mind that Sayyidina Ali at that time was probably in his late 20s or early 30s. And Sayyidina Abu Bakr is only two young, years younger than the Prophet. So, so, so imagine all of the big Sahaba, and then there's this young man, Sayyidina Ali. I mean, there's no way that he's going to be the Khalifa over Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar and things like that. So he accepted the Khilafah of Sayyidina Abu Bakr. He wasn't coerced. Because if he didn't accept it, it would have been haram for him to hide that. Oh, that's the other one, At-Tuqiyya. at sorry. That's the fifth one. At-Taqiyya, so just to go back, I'm coming. Just to, the Taqiyya is the fifth issue, which is the Sunnis understand, well that means you, know, you can lie about your belief, and the Shia says, no, no, that's just, you know, when somebody's holding a gun to your head, you, you can just say whatever you want because you're being coerced to get out of it. So that was the fifth point. Anyway, so Sayyidina Ali accepted, he, he gave bayah to uh, Sayyidina Umar, uh, to Sayyidina Abu Bakr, and also to Sayyidina Umar, but yes, after the split, the Shia will go back and they'll say, well, Sayyidina Ali should have been the Khalifa, etc., etc. That, that narrative is true. But I don't think it was, it was very clear that Sayyidina Abu Bakr was going to be the leader. In the sense that 
the, he, the Prophet led Sayyidina Abu Bakr lead the prayer. No, 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 I know, but I'm saying I, I just, it's, it's, it's a Shia narrative. And we would dispute that narrative and say, no, there was no tension in the beginning, it happened later. But yeah, they're Shia, they definitely say that, without doubt. Our understanding or our narrative of the involvement of Sayyidah Aisha salam was to calm the, the, the tension, not to take sides. That she came out to come, because all of the Prophet's wives for us are our mothers. From the Sharia point, they're like our mothers. Can't, you, know, you have to treat them like your mothers. So if, there's this, if the, the Sahaba are going to you know, fight and then in comes you know, your mother, Everyone's going to stop. So our qira'ah, our reading of the events is that she went out for that reason. So that when they would see her, they would stop. Now of course some people they say, oh she took this side, she took that side. That's not necessarily how we read it. Everyone tried to, no one wanted to fight. No, these are the sahaba of the Prophet And there was a lot of misinformation also. And that's what I was saying. If you get into the, the weeds of the story, there was a, a fifth column that were, there were non necessarily Muslims and non-Arabic names that appear on this side and that side. And then you get into the actual real details, you will see that these people killed people on both sides so that both sides would think a war started and that's how the fighting started in the first place. Not that they actually fought each other and things like that. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of like an abstract question. So um, in Qadi Ayat's uh, Ashifa, he has a section that focuses on... Um, what constitutes disrespect towards the Prophet right? And it got me thinking, like, you know, when you love someone, they're held to a higher standard, and you wouldn't interact with them in the same way that you would interact with someone that you might see as your. So, like, for your example, for your parent, your parents, you know, I would never call my my dad by his first name. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> that'd be a very inter interesting conversation. But um, it, so like, it just got me wondering, like, what would constitute disrespect towards the Prophet some that we might say normally. So like for example, just a simple example, and the tashahud, right? Uh, many people say, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad, right? But many Malikis I talk to, they say, no, don't say Allah, don't say Muhammad, say Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad, right? And to me that kind of makes sense, because like why would I say Muhammad? You know, that would just be weird for me to say. <clears throat> well, are you asking as a Muslim, or are you asking, are you asking in general? No, I'm asking as a Muslim. Like what would constitute disrespect? For us well, the, look at it the other way. فَإِنَّ فَضْلَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ لَيْسَ لَهُ حَدٌ فَيُعْرِبُ عَنْهُ نَاطِقٌ بِفَمِ The Prophet, Imam al-Busiri, he says that the Prophet's greatness is such that nothing you can say can match it. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing we can say about the Prophet that will be enough respect, enough love. So look at it that way. So in the tashahud, what we have in the hadith, is Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad, etc. We say Sayyidina Muhammad out of respect. Just like in the Adhan, you can say it's, it's, it's permissible to say, وَأَشَهَدُ أَنَّ سَيِّدَنَا Muhammad Rasulullah in the Adhan. And Imam al-Shafi'i, he said, uh, respect of the Prophet, peace be upon him, these issues surpass obedience to the Prophet, peace be upon him. So when Sayyidina Abu Bakr was leading the prayer, because the Prophet was sick. And then the Prophet found the energy and he came to pray. And all of the Sahaba are you know, going like this, like, hello, you know, the Prophet's with us. 
the Prophet, uh, Sayyidina Abu Bakr wanted to go back and then the Prophet ﷺ told him to stay. But he still went back. He disobeyed the Prophet ﷺ out of respect for the Prophet. Peace be upon him. When the Prophet ﷺ was signing the Treaty of uh, Al-Hudaybiyah and he wrote in the beginning, he told his scribe, right, Muhammad, Rasulullah, and I think it was Suhail or whoever the uh, Qurayshi was, he said, we don't agree that you're Rasulullah. Just write Muhammad ibn Abdullah. So the Prophet ﷺ told his scribe, erase it. And he said, Wallahi, I will never erase it. In the negotiating table with the, with the enemy. He disobeyed the Prophet ﷺ, but he disobeyed him out of respect for the Prophet ﷺ. So for us as Muslims, yeah, we say Sayyidina Muhammad all the time. And, you know, people when they hear in the, in the Adhan, Ashadu Anna Muhammad Rasulullah, they, you know, kiss their nails and they yeah. wipe their eyes. And there are... You know, this goes back to some of the Salihin and some of the ulama. They allowed this as a respect. All of this is from love and sign of respect. So there's no limit to how much you can do that. But if you find a Muslim and he doesn't say in the tashahud, Sayyidina Muhammad, don't accuse him of not loving the Prophet. Maybe they just don't know. And that's how we end up fighting over things we shouldn't be fighting about. Yeah. I mean, that was just an example. (laughs) Like My main point was like, what would constitute disrespect? Because most people, except in like those extreme cases that you might hear in the news or whatever, they don't go around cursing the Prophet. They might be like, oh, I'm just questioning why did the Prophet do this? They might, you know, yeah, I'm just All actions are based on intention. We, we, we are asked to think critically. There's nothing wrong with reading the seerah, reading the Quran, and asking critical questions. But we ask critical questions with the paradigm that we are believers, that we want to understand this because we are believers. So it's all about your intention. But we wouldn't want to lie about the Prophet ﷺ. We wouldn't want to say something derogatory about him. We wouldn't say, you know, the Prophet ﷺ didn't know, couldn't do, wasn't able, uh, misunderstood. Um, You know, the Prophet ﷺ was a womanizer. Because he says, I love women. But that's not what the hadith means. We wouldn't, we wouldn't talk like that about the... But just like if he was here, you wouldn't say that about the Prophet. So if he was here, we wouldn't say anything. The Sahaba, when the Prophet was speaking, as if birds were resting on their head, they were like this, sitting... Imagine if you had a bird on your head, you would just be sitting like that. Just, there's nothing to say. Just would tell me what to do. So... If, he, if, he, if he's here, and he is here, because we believe that the Anbiya are alive in their graves, which is another point of, of our belief, that Allah has forbidden the graves from consuming the bodies of the, of the Anbiya, therefore we want to address him with respect. So we wouldn't use those words that I, like, as examples in describing things in the seerah or something like that. You see what I'm saying? Right. But like also, Fadi, I mentioned in the Shifat, you know, don't make comparisons. Like, for example, the example he used in the book was, uh, if you're illiterate, uh, don't say, oh, I'm illiterate just like the Prophet because that's disrespect. I, I'm kind of going towards like that. Like, Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. His, his illiteracy was different yeah. than the, we, we have to re- learn to read and write. That's a fundamental human right. Mm-hmm. But for the Prophet his illiteracy was to protect the revelation. So that no one will come and say, well, he was, you know, he wrote 50 sonnets and 60 poems and 80 volumes. So he also wrote the Qur'an. Well, no one can say that because we refer to him as a Nabi al-Ummi. But he also said about himself, 
علمني ربي وأحسن تأديبي I think that Allah has taught me and has refined my character So he was illiterate from the point of view that he couldn't read the letters and etc But he was knowledgeable because he had ladunni knowledge He had knowledge of, of you know, divine Yeah, exactly um, But n- nothing that I have, you know Those type of examples, that's, we wouldn't talk to him about him like that Yeah, one second, go ahead Go ahead. It was Sultan Nur al-Din al-Zanki. Yes, you could take over the mosque. <clears throat> Get people to be on the board and do because because this is this is Islam 101. This is not a Sunni Shia thing. This is not a Sufi thing. This is a Muslim thing. To love the Prophet is an article of faith. That our faith is not complete. And by doing this, we are holding with the extreme vast majority of the Ummah. This is what I'm saying is nothing other than what Sawad al Adam. You know, name the alim in history and I will tell you what they said about the Mawlid. They wrote a Mawlid, you know, Ibn Kathir, even Ibn Taymiyyah himself, you know, would praise the Mawlid and, and he is used as the example of the, the one person, one person out of a thousand and four hundred years of, of Islamic uh, intellectual history that said that this is uh, not something that we should do. Not only, it doesn't matter what he said, Ibn Taymiyyah was jailed because of mistakes that he made in Aqidah. Why, why do I follow somebody, why do I follow someone like, how about the, the, the bazillion other ulama of every place, of every madhab, of every time? Like Imam al-Barzanji from who we have the most. Imam al-Barzanji was the mufti of Medina. Right, right. The Shafi'i mufti of Medina. Yeah, and I have a, I have a chain of transmission to the, to Imam Al Barzanji, uh, his to, to the Milad of Imam Al Barzanji, and all of the other Ibn Kathir, uh, 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 Ibn Hajar, Ibn Imam Al Suyuti, all of these people. Wrote, the the Maulid uh, treatise is nothing other than a you know the highlight reel of the miraculous events around the birth of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, And Imam Imam Al Kittani. Uh, Kabir, he, he has a book called At-Ta'alif Al-Mawladiyya, At-Ta'alif Al-Mawladiyya, in which he catalogued in alphabetical order all of the known 
written Mawlid books, primarily in the Arabic language. And the earliest one was written, I think, in the year 287 of the Hijrah. And they were mainly Hadith scholars that would write them, because it's a function of gathering the Hadith, uh, etc. But look, some people are just blind in the heart. So this is a Hidayah question. How do you guide somebody that's misguided? Allah guides them. In لا تهدي من أحبت ولكن الله يهدي من You can't guide who you, whom you want. Allah addresses the Prophet Allah guides whom he wills. Alhamdulillah, we're here, you know, with good company. And that's what we should concern us. But if you want to get down to it, you know, these mosques needs to be, you know, overhauled. Because they're doing a damage to their children and to the community. And I mean, I'm sure they do good as well. But, but if, you know... Slippery slope? Yes, that once you start celebrating, that, that, that the line between celebrating uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him, and then worshipping the Prophet, it's a tricky line. Nobody in the history of Islam has ever worshipped the Prophet. Ever. People have worshipped Imam Ali. People have worshipped some of these Fatimid Khalifas. But no one in the history of Islam, in any sect, in any time, has ever worshipped the Prophet Sallallahu I mean, practical tips not to worship the Prophet? I know, no, it's just Is that what the question? I think people have this concern, not that I have this concern, but the arguments that I've heard against celebrating the Prophet's life is this concern that you are you know, moving towards shirk. Just mm. don't call him God and you're good. That's the American in us, by the way. Because we have no examples anymore. Everyone's a fallen star. I mean, Bill Cosby. I mean, he was like that Monopoly scene with the simple people. I mean, that's still like, I grew up with that. But everyone is a fallen star. And the, and the Westerner in, in me, you know, thinks uh, everyone has got to be a fraud. And actually, this was a very big dif difficulty when I went to go study. I'm like, everyone's a fraud. All these teachers, they're just frauds. And, it, and I couldn't get that out of my head. And I realized it was my Western upbringing that we're not taught this kind of, of love and respect. But brass tacks, it's, it's the, what, what do we do at the Mawlid? I mean, what happens? The kids sing some songs. They recite some Quran. Somebody speaks about the life of the Prophet. And we have some sweets and that's it. I mean, there's no... We don't make a statue of the Prophet and bow to it. The idea is what, is, what are all these Mawlid liter documents, these treatises, are, are the, the stories of how he was born and the highlights of his life. So it's like a seerah, compact seerah. So what would really help if we have our young people that are creative, if they created these things in English, in American English. Um, like, um, you know that song, My Country Tis of Thee? Right? That's a, a British song. Right, it's about, uh, what is it? That's the American version, but what's the original? God save the queen, yeah. God save our noble king. God. Yeah, like that. So the Americans, you know, they're like, no, you know, this is about America. Why don't we find words to substitute that to the same, 
you know, tune about the Prophet. You know, my Prophet is of the manifest mercy of thee I praise. You are the noble one, you are the chosen one, sent to everyone manifest mercy. And why don't we have things like that? So when our parents, when our kids hear that song, that's what they think about. That's how we'll avoid that. Because when you, when you Americanize it, or Westernize it, then the meaning becomes, oh, this is about love, it's about being happy, it's about praise, you know. It's, it's, uh, remember Ahmed Hussein? Who remembers Ahmed Hussein, right? Ahmed Hussein, a lot of mercy on him, and he was a genius. Ramadan, Ramadan, Ramadan is here. Oh, what fun it is to fast one month in a year. I mean, I, just, I always remember I, around this time, I, I say the Fatiha for him because, you know, I went to school with Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on his soul. But this was, I mean, he did it in a, in a you know, Ahmed was, was a special person. But the idea was to make these things very normal. If, I, if somebody gets up and recites like some Nat in Urdu, I don't know what they're saying. Just like if I gave, stand up and sang something in Arabic, which I'm not going to do for you, you know, people won't understand it. That's not what the mawlid is about. The mawlid is about getting us to connect. So I think the disconnect is in the culture. So if we do this in a way that, forget what old people say, just, just all we need really care about is our children. So if we do these things in a way that our children understand what this means and, and see this as a happy occasion, then we will avoid any of those concerns and we will arrive at the goal which is this like, connection with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The sister, I think, she has it for us. I mean, I came with her in France and they will celebrate Ramadan with
So we'll add this verse into the song. And there we go. In, in this regard, so I have two questions I think related to this, but they're separate questions. So the first is, during the Prophet's life, are there examples of how the Sahaba celebrated his life? Because I think what you're saying is, let's remember and celebrate the Prophet's life, but we're going to do it at the time that marked his birth. Yeah, there were about 200 documented companions that sang songs of praise in the presence of the Prophet ﷺ, men and women. So can, we, so can we use some of those examples to say that that's what we should do, and, and is that associated with a certain time, or you see what I'm saying? Yeah, well, they did it when they're all, they all have different reasons why. They would do it when he would return from battle or when he entered into Medina from Mecca after the conquest of Mecca on the days of Eid, things like that. And, uh, you know, the famous, the Burda poem of Ka'b ibn Zuhair was, he came to, to make tawbah to the Prophet because he was fearful of his life. And the companions thought he was just, you know, making it up. So he just, on the spot, impromptu, came up with this, you know, very beautiful poem. And the Prophet took off his cloak and gave it to him. That's why it's called the Burda. Um, so they all have like a story behind them. But they all talk about how, how thankful they are to receive this gift of the Prophet, you know, peace be upon him, how beautiful he is and how, you know, kind he is and, you know, exalting his character and, you know, those type of, of things or how beautiful he looked and, 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 the, and or how glad they are, you know, that he's amongst them to guide them, you know, as, as the uncle was saying. So... We have about 200 documented, um, and um, they're beautiful. They're, they're really beautiful, because these are his contemporaries. But I think what, what, what we need to do is we need to have it in, our, in an English that, that we understand, in a tune, in a melody. Like Abdul Hakim uh, Murad, TJ Winter, in the UK, this is a big project of his. He, he's actually taken a lot of traditional English melodies and, and given them Islamic lyrics like english english like melodies and i think i think some of them are even published english meters and and things like that so that's what we need as as american muslims that's what we need and i think our children need to, you know are the well, inshallah we have hope that they can do so that they can take all of this meaning but put it in a in a vehicle that makes sense there's no point of me reciting the burda poem if no one understands what it means just so I can say we recited. No, the the point is is that we were trying to facilitate a personal relationship with the Prophet. I think it, it for me personally, it helps to understand what was acceptable to the Prophet, peace be upon him, right? Because he saw it and said, okay, this this makes sense. But you know, should we be considering like at, at some point if we decide, you know, I'm going to put up a tree to celebrate. You know, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I, 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 got, I got what you're saying. I got what you're saying, yeah. So we would probably be more, more conservative when it came to those things in the sense that we would celebrate in the way with the capital W they celebrated, which was usually song, metered song, poems that were sung, 
sometimes there were percussion instruments, but, but usually not. Uh, food, Muslims and food always go together, you know. And this, the Prophet he, he, he made a second aqiqah for himself after he received his revelation, even though his grandfather had done an aqiqah for him when he was seven days old. So aqiqah, you know, slaughtering and inviting people to eat, and this like walima type of idea, this is from the sunnah. So when you want to celebrate, you, you bring people and they eat. Usually they eat something sweet as well. And this reminds them of the sweetness of the event. But it doesn't have to be. And usually there's some type of remembrance. So dhikr is either in the recitation of the Qur'an, or in somebody speaking as like a lesson format, or in this case, songs of praise. But there's some type of devotional practice. We could fast together and break our fast that day. But there's something in the sharia that we use, those tools, sharia tools, to celebrate. We don't want to get into the, ha- we have a tree in the middle of the mosque, then we're going to go where the uncle is saying, you know, we don't want to do that. Then people are going to think it's like a Shinto shrine or something like that. No, we don't, that, that's, not, that's not how we're going to do it. So we're not going to, we're not going to follow uh, ways of celebration of other religious communities, we have our own ways of celebration, but we just need to revive them. It's not just the Mawlid of the Prophet, peace be upon him, but Ashura, Isra and Maraj, um, the 15th of Shaban, the evening of the 15th of Shaban, which is essentially we just come and we, we make dua, you know, until we're like tired. Uh, that's essentially all we're doing that night and then fasting the next day. So all of those are like good things to do, right? To fast, to make dua, to pray qiyam, to invite people to eat. They're all from the sunnah. That's how our celebration should be. What I was saying is something a little bit more specific, which was the language that we use to express, I think it needs to be in a way that our children, it makes sense, like it connects. That's what I meant to say. Some people have like an Eid tree. I, I don't think that that stuff is going to work. I just, that's, yeah, I don't, I don't see that. A fig tree? A fig tree, yeah. A teeny was zaytun, right? Yeah, I don't think that that's the way to go, personally. Yeah, no, no, sure. In the, in the Mawlid tradition, there are many false hadith that appear in, the, in different treatises by like non-experts. And then these become, in the modern age, they become like battlegrounds of the different groups of Muslims. That's, that's haram. I mean, that's, we're fighting over something that's, that's false. So there are many lessons like... For example, one of the things that, that is common in a Mawlid celebration is that when the recitation comes to the actual birth of the Prophet, peace be upon him, everyone stands up. But we stand up out of respect, like if the Prophet, because there is sunnah for that. The Prophet himself stood for his daughter, the companions would stand when the Prophet came. I mean, it's just a simple, like when your parents walk in, you know, you don't like lie down, you stand up in respect. But then some people will be like, no, we're standing because the ruh of the Prophet has entered. And, and he's sitting here and like that's like, whoa, what, you know, no, we're just standing out of respect because this is the, the moment in the story in which the Prophet actually was born. So we're standing to show how much we love him. So there are many things that we can, we can learn from the quote unquote mistakes or the over embellishments. The bottom line is that nothing in our religion should be used 
as a way that we fight with each other. Religion is meant to bring us together, not, not for us to be fighting. So we should not fight over, um, we should not arrogate to ourselves anything that would make me somehow appear more holy than you, or pious than you, or you over me. But we're all equal. Maybe I know a little bit because I study, that's my, my job is to, to try to teach, but many times I say, I don't know, you guys know and you teach me and I look something up. I mean, I'm very clear about that. But we should not be distinct amongst one another, except in how our relationship with Allah, that's what the Prophet taught us. So nothing in religion at all, especially in the name of the Prophet should be used for us to fight with each other. So these like Bear Louise and Deobandis that are like at each other's throats and things like that, we need to move way beyond that because if the Prophet saw that, he would be like, no, so you guys have missed the mark all. And in my name, he would be saying, in my name you're doing this. So there's much we can learn from. The way we do the Mawlid in this mosque is essentially it's a kids program. And then Brother Ali brings the kids that you know he's with every Sunday and they recite the Qur'an for us and some songs that they've memorized. And you know, I say a couple of things about the Mawlid of the Prophet and then we, and that's about it. I mean, I think that that's very general. But you don't come into the mosque on the Mawlid and feel like you've been transported to like another part of the Muslim world. You know, like everyone's dressed like a Yemeni or everyone's dressed like a Brelawi or everyone's dressed like a Turkish. No, this, this is an American mosque and this is an American Mawlid to honor our, our beloved Prophet Sasan. So there are many lessons we can learn. Yeah. Sure, where, where, where it's appropriate. I'm just making a general statement. It depends where it's appropriate. Um, religion is, is almost impossible to practice without some kind of culture associated with it. There's always a cultural uh, vehicle that carries religion. Just like language, you have to use language to carry meaning. And so culture is, is an important part of our life. Uh, the difficulties that we have is that we all come from different backgrounds and different language groups and different customs. So which one becomes the, the, the one. But in sharing that, of course, there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm, but I'm, I'm trying to make a point that what is the point of, of, of the celebration itself? Right. And if we, it's not a pro forma function, just to check a box. The, the, the point is, is, is the goal. We want to arrive at that goal in the, in, in, pardon? Of loving the 
Yeah, in the best way possible, particularly for our children. Because we want them to, real, to, to grow up that this is part of Islam, this is part of their identity. That's what matters more than anything else. I mean, in my opinion. I definitely, I some people, nobody in specific, but some people, they, it's pro forma. Right. You know, I'm going to do the, the maulid of, of Habib Omar, and we're going to do it in the Yemeni way, but no one really understands what it is, so it's, we just check the box. That's what I'm talking about. That's not what the Prophet ﷺ taught us. The Prophet ﷺ taught us to, to be aware of our surroundings and the time in which we live. And he said, this is the wisdoms of the Psalms of David, that the believer is aware of when they live and where they live. So there, there's nothing wrong with coming. I mean, this is a, you know Egyptian gown. There's nothing wrong with that. We should, we should all celebrate and, 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 and share our culture. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But I'm saying that we don't want that to come at the expense of the goal of the event itself. Or any of our, which is why the khutbah is in English, not in Arabic. Some mosques, they want the khutbah to be in Arabic. But no one in the mosque understands Arabic. So what's the point? We've missed the point. It's just a form. Islam is not a form. There's a function to it. In this case, the function is that we connect with the Prophet. So that's what I was, I'm trying to advocate. But I'm all for, you know, the culture. There is no American culture, really. I mean... The early generation, they were extremely critical of the Qur'an and extremely critical of the Sunnah. And this is a skill that we have lost. But to be a critical thinker, 
as, you, as you're saying, you need to have some tools. So you can be a critical thinker in Islam, and you can uh, investigate, and you can critique, and you can challenge, but you have to have certain tools with you to do it. That's the only thing. And those tools are what the science of usul al-fiqh is. So very simply, if you want to understand the Qur'an and you want to critique something in it, you have to understand the Arabic, or at least of the verse that you're trying to critique. You can't say, oh, I'm going to read it in an English and then critique the meaning and so on and so forth. So when I went, for example, to graduate school, the first year they gave us a course on a survey of all of the ways of critiquing religion and authority. So we studied, you know, Foucault, and we studied uh, uh, Dick, no, but all the new, uh, Judith Butler and, uh, uh, you know, queer theory and uh, postmodernism post and, and all of the uh, Italian socialist Marxist people, all of that stuff. All of the different theory. You can't enter into the study of religion in this country unless you study the usul, the, the way of critiquing all of those things. After that, you can, you know, play around. But that was the first, it's the same thing for us. If somebody wants to be a critical thinker, great, I, I, we should challenge each other. We should challenge, don't take my word for it, because I, I'm not a ordained priest. I don't speak for God. I'm a, supposed to be a scholar. You know, uh, maybe like a half-half scholar. But I, I, you know, I, I studied and I do my best, and I'm only as good as what I remember. But somebody might remind me that I made a mistake, or somebody might point out that I forgot this. Or I forgot. That's great. We should critique. But we have to critique based on those principles, on those tools. And that's what the series of principles was, to give us a little taste of that. So I, I welcome everyone to be a critical thinker. But the people that reject Islam, I say they're not rejecting Islam. They're re rejecting somebody's deficient interpretation of Islam but not Islam itself. And that's why it's such a danger that we have a lot of these people going around leading mosques and speaking. And, and somebody was arguing about, or sending me something last week. And they said, but on YouTube, it's, ah, YouTube, what? YouTube is nothing, what we're talking about. I'm telling you, in Sahih Muslim, and Ibn Hajar said this and that, and then you're saying YouTube. It doesn't matter what's on YouTube. You have to play in the same game, with the same rules as I'm playing for, for us to be able to critique one another. The Muslims were so obsessed with this, is that they called one of their sciences ilmul jarh ta'adil, the science of dissecting and, and making upright. And they would critique each person that, that, that taught religion. Where did they live and how did they live and what did they do and did they really meet this other person? They critiqued and they know this person's a liar. This person, I went to meet him and he was falling asleep. How could he remember the hadith? This person was too old. This so on and so forth. So why, why have we lost that? I, I agree with you. This is something that we have to have. The thing is, I didn't want these kids to come and talk to the people who know about it and express themselves. Ahlan Every Friday at 7 p.m., everyone is free to come and to critique yeah, and to challenge. No, no problem. No different. I'm talking in mosque. Yeah, but don't go to the mosque where they say that the weather forecast is haram and don't go to the mosque where they say Halloween is haram and don't go to the mosque where they say this is haram. And ha if you hear somebody saying the word haram more than two, three times in a conversation, turn the other way. Yeah, I, I don't go there. That's right. But maybe it goes back to the 
And then they tell me, oh, YouTube, it says on YouTube. I don't care what's on YouTube. Some kid in their boxer shorts in the basement can put something on YouTube. It doesn't mean anything. That's what he's going to do. He's going to take the mosque over. And show. No, but I'm with you. We have to, we have to, we have to think critically. Yeah, of course. But you need the tools. It's the keys to how to read the Quran and the Sunnah. That's what you need. If you put on the glasses of Foucault, you're going to get something else. But a lot of these Muslim academics, that's what they're doing. They're reading the Quran and the Sunnah with... Hagenmeyer and uh, Judith Butler and Foucault, of course you're going to get something uh, weird because that's not the usul, that's not how you interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Right. Just like I don't take uh, our principles of interpretation and go look at the Bible or the Torah or the Mishnah or, the, or, the, or, the, or something like that. I sit with a rabbi, I studied Orthodox uh, Rabbinic Judaism with a, with, a rabbin, with a rabbi. I mean for a year, but just to get a sense of how do you think, how do the Jews think about this interpretation. So it's the same thing. You can't you can't come to the, to Islam and then read it. Uh, you know, uh, all you are is a day trader or an accountant or an engineer, and think that you're going to make ijtihad. When we when we've been studying for years and decades to learn the basic tools of how to read the Quran and the Sunnah. So you want to be critical, Ahlan al-Sadan. Please be critical. But you have to have the tools so we can be speaking the same language. And if anyone wants to come and talk, they're more than free. This mosque is open. I agree with everything that uh, Uncle said, and anybody who knows me knows I'm probably the most harsh to adults when it comes to not allowing kids, well, kids my age, for critical thinking. But my only concern is is that, um, and I'm sure you've probably noticed this trend too, the growing postmodernism post trend, where because one of the tenets of postmodernism is challenging, dismantling power structures, right, and what I call like the democratization of knowledge. So it's good to critically challenge people on, to justify their beliefs. But my only concern is if we, because if, Muslims for some reason love to go to extremes, if we, ch if we try to promote a culture of so much criticism, I feel like we'll just, ch like if I challenged everything you said, no matter what you said, I'm never going to learn anything because... That's a different issue. But it will inevitably happen. There are some people, it's an issue of guidance. But see, this is not economic theory, this is religion. So a lot of it is, or all of it is based on faith. And, and part of faith is you believe in the unseen. And you believe in certain things. So that only comes through guidance. If somebody doesn't want to believe, I can't make them believe. If they're a Muslim and they're always critical and they want Islam. But what I can do is I can help, to the best of my ability, explain and articulate the, the paradigm of Islam to them. They might not accept it, that's, that's on them, not on me. All I can do, all I can do is try to articulate. Islam has a certain thing to say about gender roles, it has a certain thing to say about humanity, it has a certain thing about, to say about why we were created, etc. Now, you could choose not to believe in those, that's fine. But that's not going to change my paradigm. So, People wanting to critique, that's fine. I, I, I think it helps people like me 
focus and sharpen our articulation of the paradigm of Islam. But you're talking about being convinced. If the Prophet Sallallahu couldn't convince, well, not just convince the people of Quraysh, I mean, who, who am I to convince, you know, a, a doubting Muslim? But it's not just convince, because it's not that we should only solely focus on rationality. Like we talked about this, I don't know how many weeks ago. I think there also needs to be an emphasis on the importance of emotive experiences. You know, because we kind of divorce that from religion where it's like, oh, emotive experiences, you know, just because you feel good. That means, that means absolutely nothing. If you can't justify it with your mind, no, but that's all what tasawuf is. Tasawuf is all about our spiritual quest and the nafs and experiencing Islam, experiencing the prayer, experiencing fasting. Right, and for the layman, so especially in my age, rationality has become everything. That's the definition of modernism, rationality above all. But, the, but so, beauty is not rational. Right. Yeah, and, and the whole universe was created on the concept of beauty. So you can be rational all you want. Who wants to live in a rational world? Love is completely irrational. Beauty is completely irrational. Yeah. But religion, not just Islam, but religion in general, explains all of this and puts everything in its... There's a place for <coughs> reason, but there's also a place for the irrationality and for the beautiful and for the exper experience. And that's the mystical tradition of all religions, or what we would call you know, tasawwuf or taskeya. So the problem with this you know, hyper-rationality is it doesn't, it doesn't provide you with a framework in which you can live your life. Yeah, I mean, you can just, I mean, that's what Nietzsche said, hyper-rationality, you can justify pretty much anything. Yeah, you could justify that there are two gods, or you could justify this or that, but, 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 but it's not, we're not only created to be rational. Reason only gets you so far. Reason is not going to, you know, how come when, when somebody cuts you off, you get upset? Or if somebody... You know, gives you the middle finger. You you get like you want to fight. Yeah. There's no ra that's not rational. It's it's an emotion, anger, happiness, sadness. Has the same thing ever happened to you that made you happy, and that same exact thing has made you sad? Well, how do you explain that? Are you schizophrenic? How do you explain that? So the, all this hyper rationality of quantum the mechanics and uh, the Stephen Hawking is all garbage. It doesn't mean anything. How does it make me live my life? As a human being now, with my neighbors, with my wife, with my kids, with my friends, with my colleagues, with my workers, all of those kind of things. So you need religion because it provides you that other ethical you know, framework and has a lot to say about the experience. These hyper people don't. So, but at the end of the day, I, I, I emphasize and I repeat that at the end of the day, this is a matter of guidance. And only Allah Ta'ala guides. You can, you can tell somebody everything, all of the arguments and all of the proofs, but if the person doesn't want to believe, they're just not going to believe. So we also need to recognize that sometimes you just can't con you know, convince people. Like the people that asked me about riba. <laughs> For the last five years, I've seen, I clearly have not been able to convince them. So... Now, when I say with the majority, meaning the majority of ulama, 
When the Prophet ﷺ talks about the majority, he doesn't mean the general election. The general election doesn't count in matters of religion. The only thing that counts are the, is the electoral college. And the electoral college for us are the ulama. And not even all of the ulama, only a certain class of the ulama, the mujtahids. What is in the sharia referred to as ahl al-halli wal-aqt, the people that can loosen and bind. So there is a hierarchy of sorts in that it's not like the statistical. But the Prophet also said that the, the ummah will not agree on that the ummah will not agree on something that is false. So throughout history, all of the ulama, all of the generations, they agree on many of these issues. So therefore, that's what is a sawad al-adham. That's the majority. Not like what all of the mosques in the area are doing. They don't, we don't count. Only if we do what we're doing does it count. It's prayer time, I know. <laughs>